there is some irony in extra hurdles being added on our people, the first people of this country, and having to prove your citizenship. Yeah, really, no kidding. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Wish irony was the only I problem. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon, we'll be talking about you today on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. Also, we stream on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. And yes, you can download us as a podcast from your favorite podcast site. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we got a lot to get to. <laughs> a lot to get to today. Where are we now? Less than a week until Election Day for the crucial 2018 midterm elections. I hope you all are buckled up and paying attention and getting to work and staying busy. Desi Doyen, are you doing all of those things? <laughs> yes, I'm a little tired of the news volcano, but hey, that's just the times we live in. Yeah, well, suck it up, buttercup. We yep. got an election here coming up uh, in just days and already underway in many states. And of course, the legal fights are already under underway in a whole bunch of states, including in North Dakota, which we will get to in, uh, in a bit here. But uh, last week, we reported the good news that a federal court in Georgia had ordered Republican Secretary of State and gubernatorial candidate overseeing his own election, Brian Kemp, to not to not toss out absentee ballots with signatures deemed by non-handwriting expert partisan officials deemed to not match voter registration files by those people who know nothing about handwriting. The court ordered that those rejected ballots by the state of Georgia be treated instead like provisional ballots with voters being contacted and allowed time to come in and cure the alleged signature problem by showing up essentially and saying, yes, that was my ballot. Count it, damn it. We also noted that the rejected absentee ballot rate in the state of Georgia had been disproportionately about 70% African-American ballots, despite Georgia's voting population being only about 30% black. 
Brian Kemp, who is in a deadlocked race for governor against African-American Democrat Stacey Abrams, has been pulling out all of the tricks from the voter suppression playbook that has uh, I've never seen anything like it, frankly, uh, in my lifetime in Georgia. But Kemp argued uh, when this case was uh, was playing out a, a couple of weeks ago that his interpretation of the signature matching rules in Georgia was good enough. Whatever he decided was good enough because absentee voting in the state. And this is what they actually argued. Absentee voting in the state is not a right but a, quote, privilege and convenience in Georgia, and therefore voters don't have a constitutional right to due process if uh, counties toss out ballots based on uh, what they deem to be mismatched signatures. They don't even need to be contacted and give it a chance to prove that the ballot was theirs. If Kemp and county officials decide to interpret the uh, state statute that way, that's the way it's going to be interpreted. That was the argument that was made. But U.S. District Court Judge Lee Martin May thoroughly rejected that argument, finding that because the state law does entitle qualified voters to cast absentee ballots, the state cannot withdraw that right to cast an absentee ballot without violating an absentee voter's due process rights. They have to be given due process. Seems like that was uh, common sense to you and me and people who give a damn about, you know, rights, due process. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so voting. darling that you I think know. that things like due process count to Republicans. I know. Uh, and, of course, uh, that meant that Kemp would appeal that uh, decision to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So uh, he said he was going to appeal, and then he filed a motion to ask Judge May, in the meantime, to stay her ruling for an injunction here that had prevented him from tossing out these ballots. Stay her ruling on that injunction while he was doing his appeal. Well, on Tuesday, Judge May rejected Kemp's motion to stay her own injunction. Got it? Follow that story so far? In her order filed late on Tuesday... Again, uh, that was a week before Election Day. Judge May said she would not pause the injunction. She wrote that granting a stay would only cause confusion. As Secretary Kemp uh, issued guidance uh, in accordance with the injunction and so forth. She wrote the court finds that the public interest is best served by allowing qualified absentee voters to vote and have their votes counted. Kemp's appeal of that uh, injunction has, in the meantime, been docketed with the uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and he has also asked that court to stay May's injunction until his appeal is heard. Boy, he really doesn't want to count these absentee ballots, or even, he's not even being ordered to count them, he's being ordered to notify voters to give them the opportunity to come in and cure any problems and say, yes, that's me, that's my signature. Kemp's legal team has argued that changing the way election officials review signatures on absentee ballots in the middle of the election season would add to those officials' already full plate and, quote, threaten to disrupt the orderly administration of elections. 
very orderly, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, it's going great Going so great far. down there in Georgia, especially. Great job, guys. Uh, according to, uh, by the way, Robin McDonald over at Law.com on this decision, uh, she observes that Judge May even uh, turned Kemp's own words against him when uh, he was arguing that uh, voting by absentee is not a right but a privilege, he tried to argue, which she rejected. Well, in uh, her latest ruling, she used those words against him in uh, staying against him, uh, trying to stay the injunction pending an appeal, saying that uh, staying an injunction pending an appeal is not a right, Mr. <laughs> Kemp. It's a privilege, echoing his uh, earlier argument. So there's some good news to start things out. See, things aren't that terrible. Which usually means everything is going downhill from here. And actually, you know what? It's not completely downhill. Not It's not going downhill. This fight, this is a good fight. This is democracy. Or at least it's the fight for democracy. And we have to stay somehow positive despite your grim face, Desi <laughs> yes. Doyen. I, I know that it we is a fight worth having. positive here. Yes. Uh, there has been uh, quite a bit of attention in the media and even here on this program on a number of the high-profile races this year that could result in uh, a flip of control from Republican to Democratic in the uh, in the U.S. House, in the U.S. Senate. Senate races, for example, have uh, been getting a lot of coverage in Texas and Tennessee, Nevada, Missouri, Arizona, and North Dakota, as well as uh, failures of voting systems in some of those jurisdictions. Yes, looking at you, Georgia. And, of course, the GOP's attempted voter suppression in a whole bunch of those places as well affecting other high-profile races, like the governor's race in Georgia, among other others. We will uh, speak, in fact, with a Native American voting rights leader momentarily about the extraordinary, just extraordinary attempt to suppress the Native American vote in North Dakota, which could cost Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp her seat in that very Republican-leaning state. Even as Native Americans are banding together to try and uh, fight back against overwhelming odds there and a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision. There's been another lawsuit filed in that case concerning North Dakota. We'll talk about that in a bit. But for all of these high profile races uh, receiving a lot of coverage, there are also some others that are are seen as less uh, high profile in states where you might not think that your vote was quite as important, perhaps. And if you think that, no matter where you live in this country, in this time, in this year, you would be wrong. Case in point, the so-called blue state of Oregon, where I know we got a lot of listeners up in Oregon. If you live in a state like Oregon or here in California and you think your state, you know, it's... It's so blue, it doesn't really matter if I show up at all. Or in the case of Oregon, uh, if I bother to mail in or drop off my vote-by-mail ballot, uh, because they vote by mail across the entire state of Oregon. Uh, If that's what you're thinking, please think again. As noted today by uh, HuffPost, Jennifer Bendery reports, Governor Kate Brown is easily the most progressive governor in the country. She just signed an executive order banning offshore drilling in Oregon. She responded to the Parkland, Florida shooting by signing a new gun safety law. She signed the nation's strongest reproductive health law. And when Donald Trump began targeting undocumented immigrants for deportation, she beefed up the state's sanctuary laws. 
So you would think, writes Bendery, in a year when Democratic voter enthusiasm is supposedly through the roof and expected to translate into big wins for the party in November, that someone like Kate Brown in Oregon, the governor there, would be comfortably coasting to victory in her reelection bid. That, however, is not the case. Brown has just a slight edge at this time over her GOP challenger. That would be state legislator uh, Newt Bueller. Maybe it's Knut. I'm not sure how he says it, but over Bueller. Uh, She's just barely edging him out. Despite Oregon being an entirely Democratic-led state, Brown's race has become so tight that Cook Political Report, Report last month shifted its prediction from lean Democrat to toss-up. Real Clear Politics uh, gives her a three and a half point lead in their polling average. That's not much of a lead. They also describe it as a toss up race. So, yes, please pay attention, folks. With with so many other states uh, leaning blue, Bendery asks, why is Oregon seemingly heading in the opposite direction? Kate Brown said in an interview recently that a lot of interests want to stop our progress. One has spent three and a half million dollars to make sure we're not moving forward anymore. In that comment, she was referring to Nike founder Phil Knight. He has personally given two and a half million dollars to Bueller's campaign. The highest amount a single individual has ever given to a candidate in that state. And Knight also gave another $1 million to the Republican Governors Association, which has spent more than $2 million in Oregon on Brown's opponent, Bueller. So remember all those Republicans who were burning their Nike sneakers uh, in protest over, yeah, that new ad campaign with uh, the NFL quarterback, former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. I know. Who was, but yeah, in, in protest that how dare they put him in an ad will burn our shoes. Well, the founder of Nike is giving millions of dollars to Republicans and specifically two and a half million dollars to this Republican uh, gubernatorial candidate in Oregon. Now, Bendry points out there's a host of other reasons that Brown may be struggling, uh, sexism, a sense that Democrats have grown complacent in Oregon and that it may be time for a divided government there, frustration with the state's frayed social safety net. The editorial board at the Oregonian, for one, endorsed the Republican, hitting Brown for falling short on education and arguing that voters shouldn't factor national politics into this race which Brown, of course, disagree with, disagrees with. She says, my argument is, hell no, we need strong leadership to counteract the Trump administration. Now, I'll also note that, uh, as Bendery does, says uh, awkwardly, Nike's, uh, while Nike's founder is backing Bueller, the Nike company, which is based in Oregon and worked with Brown to advance LGBTQ equality legislation, is actually supporting her. So Nike is supporting her. Nike's founder is not. Start burning your shoes now, I guess. Take <laughs> it's your so pick. schizophrenic. I'm sure everybody can find something to burn. Uh, in a uh, in in a boost on Tuesday, uh, for Brown, however, independent gubernatorial candidate Patrick Starnes dropped out of the race and endorsed Brown. So that's some good news for Democrats. There, that could help her. But voters should not take any race for granted this year. Anything. 
You know, I've been telling you for weeks, ignore the polls, ignore the reports about turnout and everything else. Just vote and help others to vote and check your registration to make sure that you can vote and fight like hell to make sure that your vote counts. And that other people can vote. Help them get to the polls if yep. you know anybody. Organize rides. There's yeah, all to, kinds of ways to help out. Go to VoteRiders.org. SpreadTheVote.us. They are looking for volunteers. There are ways to help people vote this year in every state. And they need you. And they need you, yeah. So don't take anything for granted, even in a so-called blue state like Oregon with a governor that is very popular with progressives or here in California where oh, Democrats are going to do fine. We don't need to worry about that. I don't need to vote. I can sit this one out. Bendry uh, notes up in Oregon that it's uh, equally uh, puzzling that she's having such a difficult time here uh, and that her job is uh, at risk. Because up in Oregon, so-called Blue Oregon, abortion rights are in play this election. Oregons are voting uh, on a ballot measure that would amend the state's constitution to eliminate elective abortions for anyone on Medicaid or state-funded insurance, including public employees. So, yes, the GOP is finding, finding new ways to turn out their voters. Are Democrats doing the same? Bueller, the Republican up there who claims to be a moderate, is in fact not particularly moderate. He uh, supports ending Oregon's decades-long status as a sanctuary state. He voted against tighter gun background checks. He opposed a bill allowing courts to take weapons from people that were found to pose an immediate and imminent risk of violence. He voted against standards aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And he celebrated Trump's pardon of those Oregon ranchers who were convicted of arson on federal land in 2015, calling them good people. So he's running as a moderate. He is not a moderate. There are no moderates left, unfortunately, in this Republican Party. And there are no safe seats in an election like this one, people. So uh, while Oregon, uh, Oregonians, uh, where all the voting, as I say, is done by mail or by drop off, while uh, I guess some voters are deciding whether or not to send in their ballots. In the meantime, Native Americans in North Dakota are being forced to jump through incredible hoops in order to vote at all this year. That story is next with O.J. Siemens of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe here to explain the incredible fight to vote this year in North Dakota in the middle of a very important U.S. Senate race. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In 2012, North Dakota's Democratic U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp won her first election to the U.S. Senate by fewer than 3,000 votes. 
in an exceedingly close race in an otherwise very Republican state, the state of North Dakota. Four years later, the rural state with a population of about 670,000 would vote to give their three electoral votes to Donald Trump by a whopping 36-point margin over Hillary Clinton. The state is the only one in the union that does not require eligible voters to register to vote before participating in elections. But ever since Heitkamp's razor-thin victory in North Dakota back in 2012, often chalked up to a massive turnout effort by the state's many Native American tribal members, the GOP has been chipping away at the state's voting laws to try and make it harder for those Native Americans to participate. Last year, in 2017, the state's GOP legislature and governor adopted a new voter, uh, voter ID restriction requir- requiring all voters to have an ID with a specific residential street address in order to cast a vote. That was a problem for many of the state's tens of thousands of Native Americans who live on reservations where houses frequently do not have specific numbers and many on roads that don't even have official names. Or if they do, they're not even necessarily known to the residents who live there, who may use a P.O. box to pick up their U.S. mail, for example. But those P.O. box addresses are no longer considered valid on tribal IDs for the purposes of voting in North Dakota. The voting rights of tens of thousands of Native Americans are potentially endangered by the law, which, due to concerns of disenfranchisement, was actually put on hold by a federal court in advance of this year's primary in North Dakota when voters, including tribal members, without street addresses were allowed to vote as normal. But in an extraordinary decision made by a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court earlier in October, less than one month before the crucial midterm election day, The state was granted permission to use their new restrictive voter ID law in the general election. That Supreme Court ruling broke with years of recent precedent from the high court, disallowing last minute changes to election laws, theoretically in order to avoid chaos at the polling place. The so-called Purcell principle had been invoked by the Supremes before many recent elections, even when a late change to a voting law might have prevented the disenfranchisement of tens of thousands of voters. This year, however, the Republican majority on the Supreme Court no longer seems to care about such niceties as the Purcell principle, such long-used precedents, and Native Americans in North Dakota have been forced to scramble ever since to try and assure that tribal members will be able to vote on November 6th, despite this extraordinary obstacle. With Democrat Heidi Heidkamp now up for re-election to the U.S. Senate against Republican Kevin Kramer in a contest that will be key to both Democrats' chances of regaining a majority in the upper chamber and Republican hopes of holding on to or expanding their current two-seat majority. On Tuesday night, the Spirit Lake tribe was forced to file yet another lawsuit against the North Dakota Secretary of State over the confusion that is reigning in the state. 
as tribes scramble in the one month they were given after the Supreme Court ruling came down to try and assist Native Americans by assigning addresses to thousands of members who do not have IDs with with street addresses. As was predictable, which is why the Supreme Court's Purcell principle had theoretically been applied for years, at least until this year, for still unknown reasons, there has been chaos in North Dakota since the Supreme Court ruling. In the new case filed on Tuesday, plaintiffs are hoping to block the state's voter ID law again before next Tuesday on an emergency basis. They are demonstrating specific evidence that Native Americans are having trouble, for various reasons, obtaining acceptable IDs with a residential street address and that absentee ballot applications have been rejected because voters' residential street address was deemed invalid. According to the lawsuit, not only are Native Americans being asked to show an ID with a residential address, there is some confusion as to what happens if that address does not match a valid address on existing state records. The complaint details many issues the challengers have had in confirming that their valid residential address actually is valid, given that the government officials uh, appear to be using contradicting systems to determine individual addresses. If the address situation were not chaotic enough, the defendant in this case, Secretary of State Alvin Yeager, has arguably made things worse by refusing to provide public comment on whether poll workers will even accept addresses printed on newly issued IDs, while simultaneously issuing statements that residential street addresses on IDs must not be, quote, incorrect. Good luck. A ruling needs to come soon, but in the meantime, tribal members across the state are continuing to work overtime to try and assign addresses to members as they fight like hell to assure eligible voters will at least have a chance to vote this year. So how's that effort to fight for the right to vote in North Dakota going now less than a week before Election Day polls open? Joining us now is O.J. Siemens. He is an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and a co-founder of Four Directions, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization focused on native voter engagement, empowerment, protection and voting rights work across the country with the goal of as their Elections Observer Training Manual says, making sure that every voter in the community who is legally entitled to vote and seeks to do so is able to cast a ballot and have it counted. In 2005, Mr. Siemens testified before the National Commission on the Voting Rights Act in support of the reauthorization of that landmark law. Back in 2006 and again in 2014, he testified one year after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the central federal preclearance requirement section of that landmark civil rights law. O.J. Siemens, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Well, thank you very much for having me, Brad. I sure do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate all that you are doing and uh, a bunch of the tribal members are doing now in uh, North Dakota and several other states, but particularly in North Dakota. After this uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruling earlier in October, 
when they issued this remarkable ruling that allowed North Dakota to, you know, restrict who could vote for the first time in years based on their addresses. After they did that, uh, Mr. Siemens, they the state announced this complicated scheme I think it was the secretary of state uh, that uh, tribal members without actual street addresses on their homes or IDs, they could contact their county 911 administrator to have an address assigned uh, to be used for voting. This was they called it an easy process, but it seemed an incredibly complicated scheme to me. And in fact, according to The New York Times today, uh, this it has proven in some places to be very complicated where 911 administrators are not easily available or happen to be the local sheriff who is not always trusted by tribal members. Before we discuss what your group and others are specifically doing to offer a different way to assign addresses, how has that 911 scheme actually been working out on the ground to your understanding? Well, you know, from the very beginning, uh, when we looked at this uh, as a whole, we knew that it wasn't right. We, we discovered upon going over there that the, some of the 911 numbers, they, they assign Native American families. Mm-hmm. We, we traced down uh, the actual address, and, and they would put families. Uh, there's a bar in Fort Yates. They put the family living in the bar. Now, I don't know if somebody was trying to be funny, uh, trying to stereotype, you know, the, the, the Native Americans, uh, but, you know, us looking into it, we found out that they're actually giving Native American families fictitious addresses. Um, and if it was on their ID and they tried to vote and they knew that wasn't their address, in the long run, they're committing voter fraud. So, I mean, mm. the, there's more than just the, the overt action. There's so much covert action uh, that it's hard to keep up with over there. And, uh, yeah, it sure did seem to be a, a complicated scheme in the first place. And I was uh, struck when the state was saying, oh, it will take less than an hour, even if that's true. Uh, the idea that you have to go through, uh, you know, go to such measures to, to get an ID, an ID, an address in order to vote seems extraordinary. So what has your group for directions and a bunch of others been doing here to try and create a simpler path to assign these addresses and IDs to voters in, you had less than a month here to, to pull this uh, effort together. Well, you know, we actually uh, met with all the tribes and uh, we went over, you know, some of the problems we were facing. They were able to uh, identify some of the 911 numbers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm going to go off course here a little bit by saying, the 911 numbers are a farce. Had the state of North Dakota not tried to intentionally disenfranchise thousands of Native American voters, they would have took their 911 addresses and sent them in bulk to the tribes that were issuing the ID. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing that, what they decided to do was they would require each and every tribal member to request their own 911 address, knowing that they're going to take it to the tribe and, you know, to get the ID. So, you know, they're uh, saying this is so easy. It could have been had they done the proper thing of sending the addresses they had to the tribe. That being said, uh, we are working with current addresses that, you know, the, the tribes have acquired for enrolled members. 
But we're also creating a fail-safe system in which we identified the tribal lands, uh, we divided it up into precincts, and we made a map with street addresses in it. Uh, it's kind of like living in the city. You live in a great big uh, skyscraper. Mm -hmm. It's got 279th Street, but it's got Suite 1, Suite 2, Suite 505. Mm -hmm. Well, we're using the same concept, which is legal, uh, and we are developing a physical address uh, within the precincts, and when the individual shows where they live within that precinct, uh, we are going to assign them that physical address as they come in. So it might be 279th Street, 001, 279th Street, 002, mm -hmm. um, but it would actually be within the precinct where they're supposed to be voting, and it's totally legal. Well, you, you say it's totally legal. Has the uh, state actually uh, concurred with that, that they will, in fact, accept these uh, IDs for voting on Election Day, not force uh, Native American members to, to vote on provisional ballots, but that they will be allowed to vote on normal ballots when they're given these addresses, uh, as I understand it, on Election Day, right? Outside the polling places you guys are going to be posted? Yeah, well, <laughs> here's another uh, deal about that. Um, and again, I'm going to jump off course, but, mm -hmm. you know, in September, on September 27th, North Dakota started having in-person absentee voting, mm -hmm. which basically means you did not need any excuse in order to uh, go and vote. Well, you know, their communication with tribes, tribal members, they really didn't relay that they could start voting on the 27th. When we got there, we took some people to the auditor's office and one of them asked to vote early and the auditor group goes no uh, we don't have early voting just basically turned them away and so we said well what about absentee and she goes oh yeah sure we can do that and then gave her a ballot <laughs> told her she could leave even you know and, and send it in later and we said no she can do it right here and give it to you now can't she oh yeah she can do that too i mean so there's just so many little things that are going on now, as far as the physical addresses, uh, we decided on Indigenous Day, uh, Native American Day in mm -hmm. South Dakota, to send the Secretary of State in North Dakota a letter outlining our proposal. We didn't really expect him to say, oh, yes, this is going to work for our democracy, mm -hmm. um, but we wanted some type of an answer. And he basically came back and said, I can't really give you an answer. So... As, as far as the address system is concerned, uh, we will be able to validate those as we go along uh, through early election. But let's face it, the law has already been changed in history where you vote in a primary and they change it so you have to have an ID the next time, a different ID the next time. So what's going to stop them from actually denying it? I mean, it's not going to surprise us one bit. And that's what concerns me, because uh, they they haven't said uh, you can't do this scheme. On the other hand, they haven't said you can. And if there's any question about results afterwards, if there's any sort of challenge, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either if suddenly the state says, yeah, those addresses, we don't recognize those. Those are no good. Uh, why, O.J. Siemens, why has any of this happened? In your opinion, is there a history of, for example, voter fraud in the state of North Dakota or really anywhere in Indian country for that matter? Why, uh, 
Why is North Dakota doing this as you see it? Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, for actually for quite a few years since they've been throwing this at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime the Native Americans vote comes out to a, a point where a candidate uh, that is not in favor of the other party, whichever one, it's always the Native American vote was either fraudulent or we committed fraud. And uh, so, you know, we've had a lot of time to think about this. And, you know, one of the deals I guess I can say is more than likely there is fraud. But it's not by the Native American Indian. How can you have one political party in being reelected, you know, 10 years, 16 years, 20 years, over and over without some type of fraud not being committed. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there probably is a fraud, but it's not in Indian country. And people need to start looking in their own backyard when somebody can run for 20 years straight and never get defeated. Mm. So um, that's my take on it, but it's mm. not in Indian country. How, how many votes are uh, at risk here, as you understand it, in North Dakota under this under this new law? You know, it, it, can, it can go anywhere from five to 10,000 votes. That's how many people that that action disenfranchised as far as eligible voters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that people need to be aware of, this just didn't start in 2017. It started in 2013. Mm -hmm. And they had tried so many different ways to, to pass legislation that they finally got one they were really satisfied with in 2017, which the lawsuit was filed. And... The lower court basically said, yeah, you are trying to disenfranchise a lot of people here. That's not what, you know, uh, democracy is all about. Then we were really surprised when the Eighth Circuit Court took and stayed the lower court's ruling. And then the Supreme Court supported the Eighth Circuit Court and um, stayed the lower court's ruling. And one of the things that I guess that and again, doing this for years, is the rulings by the Eighth Circuit and by the Supreme Court was basically a, a severe spinal damage to the backbone of democracy. And it, it, the backbone of democracy, which is voting, can only take so many kicks in the back like that before it's broken. And, and so we look at this as not just being a a uh, one-case scenario, but really Native Americans who have, you know, uh, basically enlisted in the United States services uh, percentage-wise more than any other race and have fought for freedoms for other country mm-hmm. have decided that we're going to fight for our own country for a while and, and stop this madness. I know that you and your wife have been uh, outspoken over the years in favor of the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act and against the Supreme Court's gutting of the uh, the key Section 5 provision uh, that was done in 2013's uh, Shelby County case, effectively ending the requirement for federal preclearance for these kinds of laws in jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination against minorities. Uh, Were North Dakota's tribal areas covered by that requirement? And would that section, before it was essentially killed, uh, have prevented this very law from even kicking in at all this year, uh, to your knowledge? It would have stopped it dead in its track. And that was what's so devastating 
you know, not only about the Shelby case, but about the, the cases following after, is that there was actual protections there from keeping things like this from happening. And, and making sure states within the preclearance, you know, went and forwarded a Department of Justice to ensure that the, the voting rights of uh, individuals were protected. The Shelby case, had it been here right now, North Dakota wouldn't uh, be able to do what they've done. A last question here for you, OJ. Uh, how has this uh, issue affected the community? From everything that I have re- read and, and, and seen out there, they seem to be rallying around uh, this attempted blockade, trying to overcome overcome it. Is, is there a chance that voter turnout in North Dakota could actually be higher Thanks to the attempt to block the vote in North Dakota. Could this backfire on the bad guys here? You know, I, I honestly think it can and will. But, you know, the thing about it is <laughs> it's the tribes and the tribal leaders that have taken a stance on this to protect their tribal members and have gotten that word out and have actually uh, met and said that they are going to remain united and ensuring that their people, their tribal members, are afforded their constitutional right to vote. And it's not been cheap for them, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, tribes have spent tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment, coffee machines, uh, ID machines, uh, man hours, just trying to ensure that their tribal members are afforded their equality and their right to vote. So, yes, I expect a bigger turnout, and it's because of the tribe's commitment, but it's at a cost to the tribes, too. I would uh, point folks to your website, fourdirectionsvote.com, if they're interested in getting uh, more information and hopefully donating to this important effort. You can also uh, follow them on the Twitters at fourdirectionsvote. That's the number four in that case four directions vote. O.J. Siemens, uh, I know you've been fighting uh, this good fight for many years out there and uh, what you have been doing for years and what you all have been doing uh, right now to fight for the right to vote for Native Americans. uh, I can't thank you enough for that effort, uh, much as I can't thank you enough for joining us here today on the broadcast, sir. Well, Brad, first of all, no, thank you. (laughs) Because if it wasn't for individuals like you, we would not have a voice. So, you're giving us an opportunity to show the rest of the country what we have to do. I mean, you're looking at people that are fighting for the right to vote, and yet we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that don't have this obstacle and yet are not taking advantage of it. So I just hope this not only does it for Indian country, but it also lightens up the light bulb for other individuals that are not taking advantage of what they've been given. Couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for the, uh, for saying that and for your kind words. O.J. Siemens, executive director and co-founder of Four Directions. Thank you, sir, and I hope you'll stay in touch uh, throughout this election day and beyond, my friend. Thank you. You know, it's... Um, 
Maddening, Desi Doyen. I'm, I'm glad that uh, OJ mentioned that about people who do have the right to vote, but who are not using it. Yes, it's, uh, it, it, it is quite maddening. That's a good word for it. I mean, uh, and actually, uh, we all have the right. All of uh, those uh, Native Americans uh, have that right in North Dakota, but they have to fight like hell to get it. It's being treated like a privilege. It is not a privilege to vote. It is a right to vote. Exercise that vote. Um, exercise that right. All right, quick break, and we'll come back with, uh, oh, I've been uh, making fun of you in Texas for a few <laughs> days, Daz, so it's only uh, only fair that I turn it back to my home state of Missouri. We'll go there after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Have I been blind? Have I been lost inside myself and my own mind? Hypnotized, mesmerized. What my eyes have seen. Or when it comes to voting machines in uh, jurisdictions across the country, and yes, in my old hometown of St. Louis, St. Louis County, Missouri, uh, what you're not seeing. We want to talk about that real quickly in a moment. But Desi Doyne, you said there was a we said there was a caller on Monday's show who was not able to get through. Or she got through, but I didn't have time to put her on air. Is that, yes. Is that right? Yes, yes. We ended up running out of time. Uh, her name is Mary, and her sister, Terry, called in. And, and since we couldn't get her on, she uh, sent me an email. And she said, Dear Desi, thank you for suggesting an email. We called the other day, but did not get on the show. My sister, Mary, has Down's syndrome and wanted to make the call. She really liked what Brad had to say as we listened to the show. While okay, Ron- good. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that listener uh, email. There, there's, but there's more. Oh, there there's is? more. Yes, uh, she really liked what Brad had to say as we listened to the show while riding in the car. She is vehemently opposed to President Trump because since he came into office, some of her assistance programs have lost funding. Mm. And in general, she does not like his policies. She also thinks women should be in charge and the men should be the secretaries. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. She wants Elizabeth Warren to run for president. She's also an artist. So those are her comments. Well, thank you, Mary and And Terry. Terry. Yes. For uh, for getting through here one way or another, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening to the show, uh, and for those thoughts. Um, they're all good ones. Yes. All right. Uh, let's see. Very quickly, I mentioned Missouri, um, and you know, there's a, a used to be what used to be when I grew up. I listened every night to KMOX, the Voice of St. Louis, fifty thousand. 50,000 clear channel watts that covered, you know, a dozen states or more. Fantastic. One of the one of the first talk radio stations. Well, it's kind of now all turned to uh, right wing talk, as far as I can tell, or at least irresponsible talk and news, news radio, KMOX, uh, at least according to this, this story I saw tweeted out today by KMOX's Kevin Killeen. Uh, who included the, um, the the tweet that linked to his story on this. Uh, the, the tweet said, St. Louis County Republican Director of Elections Rick Stream says next Tuesday's big vote will be honest and 
hacker proof. Okay. Hacker proof. Well, that's good news. And then the uh, article is headlined St. Louis County Election Board on guard against hackers. Subtitle electronic touchscreen machines called, quote, tamper proof. <laughs> oh, my. Now, I know that election officials uh, like to pretend that that is the case, and some of them may actually believe that's the case because that's what their vendors tell them, and they've spent millions of dollars on those vendors who have lied to them and told them things like their machines are tamper-proof, but they are not. And a, a station like KMOX, as powerful as it is in St. Louis, Missouri, and all across the state... Um, ought to know better than to just pass on propaganda like that. Killeen's article starts this way. County election officials say they're ready to run a good, clean election without any hacking. With the biggest block of registered voters in the state, 670,000, St. Louis County might seem like a tempting target for would-be hackers. Well, yeah, that is true, especially in a state with a very key U.S. Senate race between incumbent Democrat, uh, Democratic U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill and her challenger, Republican Attorney General Josh Hawley, which, depending on which way that one goes, could also determine the makeup of the U.S. Senate next year. Colleen writes, But Republican Director of Elections Rick Stream says the voting machines cannot be manipulated from someone someplace else. None of our machines are ever online, whether it's paper ballots or touchscreen, Stream said. Now, I should explain, in St. Louis County, you are allowed to vote when on Election Day at the polling place on either the 100% unverifiable ES&S touchscreen voting systems at the polling places, systems that have failed in election after election after election, by, you know, flipping votes, not letting voters vote, uh, not powering on at all. And yes, reporting results that no one could ever explain over the years in a whole bunch of states. So when you go uh, in St. Louis County, you you're allowed to vote either on the touchscreen or on a hand marked paper ballot. That hand marked paper ballot, of course, will later be tabulated by an ESNS optical computer optical scanner, but at least there is a hand-marked paper ballot record of how you voted, and it's much faster to vote on a paper ballot than it is on a touchscreen, particularly this year when Missouri has an historically long ballot. There are going to be, I'm afraid, some very long lines across Missouri and, yes, in St. Louis County. So you have that choice. Now, when you go to vote in St. Louis County, they don't usually uh, ask you which one would you like, paper or plastic. <laughs> they ask you, they just sort of point you to the touchscreens in general from all reports that I've heard. I still have family in St. Louis. But you, you have the right. Just ask to vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. Nonetheless, back to Killeen's story here at um, KMOX. Uh, he, he writes, asked if someone could hack into the machines. Through something similar to Wi-Fi, the uh, Republican director of elections, Rick Stream, says none of the machines have any type of receiver that would allow that. Well, I hope Stream is right about that, because ESNS, as reported recently by Kim Zetter over at The New York Times, lied, blatantly lied to The New York Times about the fact that thousands of their machines in use across the country actually have cellular modems in them that can be accessed 
via the, the, the cellular data line. Now, election officials may not even know that's the case on some of these machines. ESNS lied about it and then refused to basically, and they were caught because Ron Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden, asked them uh, about this, and they told the truth to Ron Wyden, because otherwise, you know, that would be lying to Congress. Uh, but they didn't tell the truth to, New to the New York Times, and it's been very difficult to figure out which systems around the country have these cellular modems in them. Does Missouri's have them in them? We don't know. Killeen did not apparently ask that specific question and didn't get a, a specific answer on it either. I'd like to think they don't, but who knows? In fact, those uh, those touchscreen systems uh, the and the optical scan systems have these cellular modems in them around the country. And yet, KMOX is telling people that these systems are hacker-proof. They are tamper-proof. Stream says when the voting machines are not deployed in the field for Election Day, they're not sitting around where people could tamper with them. All of our machines are locked up. We have 24-7 security on them, double locks, a Republican and a Democratic lock, Stream said. If you've seen it in our warehouse, the fence goes to the ceiling. Nobody can get in there. Okay, well, uh, A, Mr. Mister Stream, he can get in there along with his uh, Democratic uh, election director. They have co-election directors in Missouri, or at least in St. Louis County. They can get in there. They have access to those machines. But let's say we trust them. Let's say they're fine. We shouldn't trust them. We shouldn't trust any election official. There's no reason to. We, should, we don't have a system that requires trust. It requires oversight and checks and balances. But uh, we often don't have public oversight. And the fact that these machines, as Mr. Stream is claiming, as KMOX is helping him claim, uh, that these machines are never on the Internet, that is not true. We hear election officials say this all the time. It is all the time not true. Because those machines all need to be programmed and the way they're programmed is a computer that is hooked up to the Internet creates a ballot uh, definition, a ballot format, and then the uh, and puts that onto a card. And then that card is stuck into those voting machines. And as election uh, uh, voting system officials have been warning for years, if that card itself programmed on a computer that is hooked on the Internet, if that gets infected and is then stuck into one of the voting machines, all bets are off. So every machine, yes, is connected to the Internet, even though election officials continue to claim otherwise. And frankly, Kevin Colleen of KMOX, after all of these years, this system uh, being used there, he should know better and he should hold election officials feet to the fire on this stuff. I cannot be in every state, in every county in this country. These are not new issues that are just now being uncovered. We have known about this for years. And KMOX has a huge, a huge reach. That's why I'm not on KMOX, probably. <laughs> they have a huge reach. And they ought to be better informing their uh, their listeners and their readers at their website. 
I I uh, tweeted to Kevin Killeen today. I said, shame on KMOX Killeen, and that's his uh, Twitter name, and the once great KMOX. They irresponsibly report St. Louis County, Missouri touchscreens and scanners are, quote, tamper-proof. That is false. Claiming the uh, machines are never connected to the Internet. That is also false. And then I link them over to some actual facts on that. And uh, Mr. Colleen tweeted back. Actually, he retweeted my my tweet uh, and added, um, do you trust your vote on a touchscreen to be hacker proof? Here's a voter who warns they aren't. Interesting read. Okay, well, I'm not a voter, at least in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, As I told him, I'm a journalist, and um, this is not a warning that systems aren't hacker-proof. This is not my opinion. I'm pointing him and readers to well over a decade of science that actually proves as much. This is not debatable, and I noted that uh, you and KMOX should serve voters by reporting that fact. That fact. This This is not a debate. And boy, do they not help voters when they pass on propaganda from election officials, which gets propaganda from the voting machine companies. So uh, there's that. And I hope Kevin Colleen and KMOX tell voters in St. Louis that, yes, they can vote on hand-marked paper ballots at the polls if they want. That was also not pointed out in the article. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks as well to my guest today, O.J. Siemens of fourdirectionsvote.com. If you like, uh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. And since I'm not KMOX, I need to ask for your help. I hope you'll consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and me continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves and as we have been doing here and at bradblog.com for over 15 years. I wish KMOX would pay attention. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>